This is the Illuminate Podcast, a Sandy Boy production. Each week on the Illuminate Podcast, the hosts will bring you insightful conversations and stories of people who are illuminating their own lives through their business, work, community, family, and world. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Illuminate Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Lindsay Hine, and today you're listening to episode 38. Today in this podcast, I'm talking with Dr. Adam B. Hill. He is a pediatric palliative care physician at Indiana University's Riley Hospital for Children here in Indianapolis, Indiana. And Dr. Hill openly shares his story of depression, suicidal thoughts, and alcoholism while working in the field of medicine. He is now years into recovery and he has a story of hope and a message that there is another side. Dr. Hill's voice has been featured in USA Today, the Chicago Tribune, Indianapolis Star, Medium, Thrive Global, Medscape, and a cover story on Modern Healthcare Magazine. Dr. Hill has also been named a National Mental Health Champion Award winner for 2019. He is also an author. He has put all of his learnings into a compelling full-length narrative book entitled Long Walk Out of the Woods, A Physician's Story of Addiction, Depression, Hope, and Recovery. This is a conversation we need to always be talking about. And it's always important, but right now in the middle of this global pandemic, the mental health of our healthcare professionals is definitely at the forefront. And I'm really happy that we were able to get this conversation out on this podcast. All right, friends, enjoy my conversation with Dr. Adam B. Hill. Well, today on the Illuminate podcast, I am excited to welcome Dr. Adam B. Hill to the show. Welcome to the show, Dr. Hill. Thanks for having me. Excited to be with you. Yeah. Big thanks to Lauren for connecting us and recommending you for the podcast. Um, I've been reading up on your story quite a bit, and I feel like right now, more than ever, it's a message that is really important to share. So I'm really excited to talk with you. So you're an indie guy. You're a pediatric palliative care doctor at Riley. So can you kind of just share with us a little bit about your background and how you got interested in that line of work? Sure. You know, I I'm a, I grew up in southern Indiana. I'm a, I'm a Hoosier by, by heart. I, uh, you know, always had dreamed of coming back and working at Riley, a place that really means a lot to me personally. But my professional journey kind of took me all over. I studied in at St. Louis University, then worked at, at Duke University, where first I was a pediatric oncologist, so helping patients and their families of children with cancer. And at you know, in that work, I really found an intimate love for palliative care, which is a, another subspecialty of medicine where, where really our job is to help any family and and patient navigate serious medical conditions and, and sometimes ones that may be life-limiting or life-threatening. And, and so out of that work in oncology really grew this passion of 
expanding that work to, to all families that have children with serious medical conditions. And that brought me back to, to Riley about five years ago and been here ever since. And you said Riley was kind of always in the back of your mind. What, what was it about Riley that you always kind of wanted to land there? You know, my one of my first experiences in medicine as a volunteer when I was 19 years old was at Riley Hospital for Children. I was a freshman at Butler University here in Indianapolis, and I spent my Friday nights uh, pushing the Magic Castle cart around, which is a, a toy cart for for children and adolescents that are in the hospital. And and doing that volunteer work every Friday night, sometimes where my friends were, you know, out and about, uh, I was I was doing that work, and just it was uh, so meaningful to to get to do something and meet families where they're at in the midst of life altering and and sometimes just really difficult times. But to try to do something, even if a really small something, to make their stay, their day, their weekend uh, a little more comfortable. And so, uh, you know, I I just loved it from the very beginning, the community, the camaraderie, the people, the families, the, the, the hospital and the culture and, um, and just really fell in love with the hospital back even then at 19 years of age. Yeah. You mentioned being 19 and, and I think a lot of people at that age are kind of, not that every adolescent doesn't, um, ever think about hard things, but I think we kind of put a band-aid on hard things in life. You know, when we're that young, we're in college and we're interested in, in going to parties and things like that. And so it's interesting that you were so invested at such a young age. How has that shaped your career now? Yeah, I think, you know, it, it started early for me, actually. My, you know, a lot of my family works, um, in education and teaching, working with young people, work in teaching the power of investing in your community and civic responsibilities. And my father was a mental health therapist. And so I always from an early age, uh, it was ingrained in me to, to give back, to invest in the people in your community and, and especially in young people. And so I, I think that's what you know, and seeing my father and the work that he did with individuals that had their own mental health addiction stories, uh, trauma histories, and really had lived experience um, made me want to explore that space myself. And so, you know, that's what led me to start doing volunteer work, which led me to a path in, in medicine. And and I really, you know, even 20 years later, uh, 39 years of age now, I'd I try to keep that perspective of why I'm doing this work and to try to make even a little bit of difference. And so I try to keep that framework even today. Well, let's talk about your life. You mentioned mental health a little bit, and you've written a book about your own journey with this long walk out of the woods. So, you know, as I've read about your story, I imagine working as a professional doctor, you know, in the healthcare field, that someone who people go to for answers and comfort and treatment, there must be this huge pressure to have your own life totally together, but you 
are human and you're just a human with a big job. So I would love to kind of just hear you talk about that that piece right there. Yeah, I think your your points are very insightful and for a long time we have built this cultural pedestal to perfectionism or idealism of what a of a healthcare professional should look like and that you know um and i think part of my own personal story which is one of significant depression and addiction and even suicidality um taught me to really deconstruct that narrative from the bottom of despair and and rewrite it in my own terms of who I am and how I want to live my life openly and authentically. And, and you know, that's led to me having a platform to be able to, I think, break down some of that pretense, the, you know, separation between doctor and patient and um, this fallacy of some you know, that we have our lives all together or that we're not, you know, broken by the same things that other people struggle with is, has led to a place where I'm, I'm better at my job. I'm more compassionate, more empathic, more understanding. I, um, I think I have more opportunities to be able to connect to people by simply being who I am. And, and it's, it's led to this beautiful new chapter of my, my professional life. Yeah, I feel as though we sometimes take our doctors for granted, like you guys are some sort of superhuman God type figures almost, you know, Um, how do you and how did you kind of reconcile that, that people view a, a doctor kind of in that light? Well, I, you know, I think for me, so I, you know, I reached a point in my, in my life and career, um, you know, nine years ago where I was, I was just so broken by everything that I saw around me, by the hierarchy of, of medicine, of working in a system where sometimes as a, as a doctor, a nurse, a nurse practitioner, you just feel helpless to be able to control, to help people, um, fighting insurance companies and fighting all these barriers of um, to get people access to to care that um, and seeing trauma and death and tragedy and all these things over and over again that um, it contributed to spiraling into this deep dark depression for me and um, and for me I I coped by drinking I had learned that actually early on, uh, even in my adolescence, that that was a way to relieve anxiety and tension that I had building up. And so I, you know, I would, I would grind through the difficult work of putting on the perfect ideal face of who I was supposed to be as a doctor and, and do my work and then go home and, and drink. And I was just masking my, what I was suffering and struggling with until it was almost too late. And, and so, you know, I I did that as a way to try to cope and grind, and eventually I drove out to a, a park in North Carolina and had a plan to never come home. And, you know, it was out of that uh, experience and finding recovery and being at the bottom points of life and not knowing that there was anything worthwhile to live for that I really began to just build my life back up from the 
from the bottom of my marriage and fortifying that and eventually children. And we are blessed to have three healthy, happy children, including a five-week-old at home right now. Congratulations. Thank you. And, and But part of rebuilding that was prioritizing what's important in my life and 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 not taking you know what other people thought of who I'm supposed to be and holding that as up as some ideal but instead writing my own story and and writing it in terms of what I want to live for and what's important and and it really you know four or five years into recovery is when it all sort of clicked for me that um I lost uh, another colleague to to suicide. I've actually lost six colleagues to suicide in my career. Wow. That, um, yeah, and, uh, you know, it was during that moment where I'd been in a good space in my own recovery that I said, I felt disingenuous. I didn't feel authentic. I didn't feel like I was reaching out to people to connect in their times of need and loss and grief by hiding my story and by hiding, you know, what I had been through. And that was really this tipping point of me, of this liberation of who I am and really started talking openly about it in, in, in 2016 and, and um, not, you know, shaking off shame of, of hiding this away as something I should be, um, you know, afraid of, ashamed of, feel guilty about or unworthy because I lived through this, but really something to be proud of as something I've uh, continually every day try to overcome. And, and that was, that was the big tipping point. And, um, and since then, the last four years, it's awarded me opportunities to speak, to write, to travel, to, to share my story in a whole different way. And the rewards um, have been immense. So you lived four years after the night you planned to not come home in, in silence, or did your wife know? Who did you first yeah. talk to about this? Yeah, so, you know, those moments in the woods, I called my called my wife. Mm-hmm. She got me connected to, uh, to counseling, to um, addiction therapist, and... And really, you know, in, back into depression treatment, uh, my parents and my sister and a couple of close friends were really the intimate, uh, immediate circle that I trusted. And, you know, it stayed relatively small for years of, of people that I let into that. Um, you know, we, we can diatribe into the medical licensing and policy and credentialing things if we wish about how you're outed publicly Mm. for having a mental health story um, when you apply for jobs, which happened to me. Um, So I had to disclose my history and then it became, um, you know, public knowledge um, um, against my wishes. But, um, But still relatively then I think few people paid attention and I still kept a lot of my, my story, uh, you know, pretty private, um, and uh, until I really chose to to own my story and and write it in terms of strength and not weakness, and uh, that I think everything changed. Yeah, and so you did that because you wanted to be a voice for others who might be feeling those feelings and going through that mental health crisis, if you will, because um, if they see someone else 
stepping out about it, they might not feel so alone. That's absolutely right. I, you know, I felt like it was my job. I'd taken an oath as a physician to, to do no harm and to help treat other people and, and, and really every day, you know, go into, to work to try to help and heal people. And what a blessed opportunity this is to do that in a whole different way of to connect to people who are suffering or struggling in silence. And, and those people may be my friends or my colleagues or people I pass in the hall every single day. And if all that is required of me is to be honest about who I am uh, to do that, then, then I felt like it, you know, maybe I could have an impact. Yeah. So your book is called The Long Walk Out of the Woods. And so you were in the woods when you had the most traumatic experience that you ex- explained here. Was that a part of titling the book? Yeah, it's really this um, you know symbology of uh, that every day of my life has has continues to be a this walk out of the woods that it's not uh, finished, but that um, out of those basic beginnings of recovery is is where I'm coming from and um, you know uh, walking further every day into a life of recovery so um, so yeah that's the the imagery behind the the front cover of the book and and that's you know how my story has evolved and and continues as somebody who's now six and a half years into you know sobriety and um, better part of a decade now into you know depression recovery so I'd love to talk about this mental health stigma and especially right now, uh, the mental health, I mean, it's not especially right now, but right now this is amplified the mental health and well-being of healthcare professionals, um, because of the COVID pandemic and everything that's going on. It's more of a public conversation. Um, Dr. Breen, the doctor from New York city, um, her death recently was all over the news. And so, Do you think, in spite of all the awfulness of the COVID crisis, that this could be one positive thing that we're actually talking about, the mental health of our healthcare professionals? Yeah, I I sure hope so. And, you know, another tragic death and loss of a a colleague um, like Dr. Breen, Um, you know, it's earth shattering when we see those things and the unfortunate ugly truth is that it happens every single day mm-hmm. and you know, we and over the last several years we've been talking more about uh, physician suicide and um, and and that gives me a lot of hope that more attention is being paid and raising awareness I you know but the the truth of it is nurses and respiratory therapists and therapists and you know all all also struggle in the in the same mm-hmm. way and and you know we have docs every day dying by suicide across this country and so i i do hope that maybe out of the tragedy of this pandemic um we'll really invest in infrastructure and support and and start breaking down the stigma in in a new way that will allow people to seek help and, and treatment uh, in a way that could save their life. And and so, yeah, I, I hope so. I hope we continue to see that. And so 
I'm curious, what is your, what is your message of hope for a physician or a healthcare employee or really anybody who is walking through depression and scared right now? What's your message to them? Yeah, you know, I, for anybody who's struggling, it is that recovery is possible and there's so much hope for a, a brighter future. I, I, you know, never would have believed that when I was in the darkest pits of despair myself. But, you know, my life uh, every day is a, a new blessing. And I, I, I couldn't even fathom being in the position that I am now, being in a, you know, a leadership role in the hospital and having uh, such a beautiful, healthy, happy family. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, so reach out your hand and just take the next step of asking somebody for, for help. Um, and the, the rewards can be immense. And um, even when you don't believe it in, in the moment, just reach out your hand for help. I would love to know a little bit more about, um, without getting too personal, of course, but just the relationship with your wife and how she was really your rock through all of this. I imagine her role has been a difficult journey as well. And she's probably over the moon, like you said, with your beautiful family now, but I imagine it's been really challenging for her as well. So um, can we just learn a little bit about that? Yeah, I, would, I love it when people bring this up uh, in these these podcasts or interviews because I, you know, I dedicate the, the book to her and I write in the book that you know she's the true heroine of this story. It's not me, and I get a little emotional talking about it even today because, um, you know, without her, uh, I wouldn't be here mm-hmm. and. Um, and you know her patience, her compassion, her guidance, her understanding, and 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 helping me to to get the help that I needed um, was the is the reason that I'm here today. And so, you know, I don't ever pretend that we have some infallible, perfect uh, life or marriage either. We struggled mightily. We, you know, we were in in marriage counseling and we went through several years of of refiguring out each other as i you know was learning how to be a a person um, in recovery and and i think through all those trials and and the hardships and moving even state to state and um it just taught us so much about each other and that we were dedicated and devoted to each other and that we could lean on each other even in the hardest of times and you know, even in this pandemic, we've looked at each other several times in the last month and just said, we've been through so many hard things and we'll get through this too. Mm. And, and to mean it, you know, in a way that, um, that we both knew came from a place of, of living through just really difficult things. And, um, and that really meant something. And so I, I think that, you know, we continue to lean on each other uh, still today, and and in uh, in part of her recovery journey, which is her story and not mine, but you know, is one of that she likes people to know too is reaching out for help as a spouse, a significant other of somebody who's been in recovery. I mean, 
she went to Al-Anon and had her own support groups and networks and and people that she could trust and confide in as uh, somebody who felt lied to, as somebody who felt, you know, who didn't know her husband for several years Who as I struggled. And so I think that that's critically important um, for people whose lives are turned upside down by addiction to find their safe spaces too. And and she did that and um, – in a way that I think helped her through as well. Yeah, you know, I've talked to somebody else on this podcast who went to support groups for, she was the best friend of someone in recovery. And I never knew how important that was. And I'm sure a lot of people don't even realize those groups exist. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, honestly, you know, even as a, a medical professional, my wife also works in the medical field. I mean, it wasn't uh, it wasn't something our eyes had been open to until we lived through it either. You know, so um, even as somebody who intellectually studied in all of these different pharmacology and physiology of addiction and to to live through it and to know what it's like and to know the resources available and to know um, is a whole different thing. And I think. Um, you know, discovering that uh, was something that that we had to to do ourselves too, and so I'm grateful she found what she needed as well. Now, one thing I wanted to talk about is uh, being a man and uh, dealing with this mental health battle, and I think that a lot of times uh, it's looked at maybe as a weakness. And I'm just thinking of my own family, and you know, my husband. I know he feels like he's the backbone of this family and he has to be strong when I might be hormonal, you know, because I'm postpartum or whatever I'm going through. And so I would love to just kind of like knock that down and talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I think what what this, you know, my experience has taught me is that true leadership and strength uh, comes through the vulnerability of being open and and honest uh, about what you're going through and and the rest to me is uh, window dressing you know I and so I, I think I've found over and over again ways to to lead by and whether that's you know in interpersonal relationships or in professional ones but by doing so in a way that feels um, uh, and and for me, that is by sharing that, yeah, I struggle. I have good and bad days, and um, I've been through all of this. I take sobriety and recovery one day at a time. It's not a gender role, uh, you know, that that I have to fill by you know doing certain things. But um, but that that really my I think greatest ability to. Um, to lead in any fashion is, is just to, to share the, the truth of what I've been through. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that you, you know, like had been outed of the mental health issues that you'd walked through and that maybe could affect, you know, a job opportunity or something like that. What, what are the, the boundaries with that? I, I can see how someone, regardless of the job they're after, could be so anxious and nervous about that. It's like a dietitian maybe who 
you know, is a re- recovering from an eating disorder. You know what I mean? Like that's yeah. probably really scary. So what does that look like in, in your professional practice? Yeah, that's great. And I think there's a two different pieces of that with short both great questions. One is, you know, the personal boundaries of how to navigate a professional life where your own story may come up. And that's an important one. And I think the the second piece of that is, you know, the professional one where for decades we've created policies that actually shy people away from disclosing their mental health or treatment histories. And this isn't unique to medicine. It happens in the military and, and for lawyers and dentists and school teachers and the list goes on. Um, but where, you know, to, when you apply for a job, it asks, have you ever been in mental health treatment? Have you ever been in addiction treatment? Have you ever been on medications? And and really, those are discriminatory questions. We you can't ask about somebody's uh, sex, religious, you know, um, uh, beliefs or physical health conditions, but you can ask about their mental health conditions. And that's always struck me as um, against ADA and really discriminatory practice. And yet we continue to do that. And unfortunately, as we mentioned earlier, that's contributed to people not seeking mental health treatment. It's contributed to a suicide epidemic in, in medicine and and really pushed people away from seeking proactive help. And and so fortunately, over the last handful of years, there's been a push to change that, to really try to get people into treatment and take away some of those policies that are um, you know, dissuading people from seeking help. Um, and so that's one of the things I really try to push for and work on and advocate as a, as a voice of a man in recovery is that, you know, we're not going to get people into recovery if the first thing that they meet they meet is a punishment for seeking treatment. Yeah. <laughs> and um, which is partly what happened to me when I voluntarily went into addiction treatment, went, you know, was successful and then was met with my license being put on probation for two years, even though voluntarily disclosing that I, you know, successfully sought treatment. Um and so that piece still needs a lot of work. The personal boundaries one, I think, is is really a personal question that individuals have to ask themselves about how to navigate it in a way that feels safe and healthy for you um, while having a therapeutic relationship with somebody else. And my, for me, you know, it comes up a decent amount. I take care of young adults or adolescents who have their own addiction stories, who have their own mental health stories. For me, it's the simple rule I use is never to make it about myself. And um, and so if somebody comes to me and my story has been, you know, public now and obviously in writing a book. So I have patients and families that have literally been reading my book as I've gone in to do a consult <laughs> that happened once. Um that know my story and but I but I just make it in you know try to make it in a way where if, if somebody asks me about something you know that may be helpful to them then I'll answer it honestly but I don't go in you know you know sh- sharing openly my my story or the depths of it but um but use it hopefully in a way just to connect my humanity to somebody else that um you know an example of that being 
you know, I did have a, a teenage patient who I wrote about in the book who shared with me their own struggles with suicidality and um, deep depression. And they shared with me because they saw my story in a newspaper mm. and felt, and they hadn't even been able to tell their family and but really trusted in me because they had seen that I maybe I would understand. And um, and that really meant something deep, you know, to me that that trust was there. And then I was able to get that person to help. And but I always, you know, when people come to me or in professional jobs and who are also in treatment, I uh, I just caution them to do what's best for you and your recovery first Um to never put your place, you know, put yourself in a place where you feel vulnerability that you can't uh, rein back in. Yeah. Why is there so much shame attached to not being able to take control of it all by yourself, you know, without medicine, without help of other people? There seems to be this shame attached to that. And why do you think that is? Yeah, I, I think the you know, this it's uh, been deep seated in 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 culture for a long time, and the mental connotation is one that expects that you know we have some ability to influence or control it or just act differently or behave, and 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 alongside that of just you know criminalized uh, at times uh, mental health conditions, and we. Uh, sensationalize it in ways in, in modern culture and too that all you ever hear about is masked gunmans and crazed psychopaths and you know mental health institutions with this negative connotation and in a way that it just paints this negative imagery all the time of what it's like and that individuals with mental health condition are dangerous or on the outskirts or fringes of society and 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 it's just been this false narrative that's perpetuated for so long when the truth is, you know, 20% of, of individuals in, in this country uh, alone have mental health condition diagnoses formally. And, and, and so there, we're not talking about a, a small number of people. And so... You know, I think with that punishment, with that, how the story's been written, the sensationalization and the mental connotations of how we can control those people just expect that uh, we should do better. Or it's a moral failing or a weakness. Um, but the truth is there's physiology and uh, that connects to, you know, our our brains and our behaviors and, and, and these conditions that that need formal treatment. And, um, and I think that part of just sharing our stories is to humanize it in a way that we can hopefully break down some of that shame. Yeah. You know, I kind of get this feeling that the whole like self care culture, the self help authors of the world have almost like messed with our heads a little bit because look, someone can tell me to choose joy every morning and sure, that's what I want to do. But if there's a chemical imbalance in my body, I can't just say, okay, I'm just going to turn it all around. It just doesn't work like that. Um, that's absolutely right. You know? I, 
I love that. I love that insight so much. It's so true. And like when people just, you know, it's the difference between sympathy and empathy. It's saying, oh, just feel better or be mm. grateful or, you know, do this or like that is really a disconnect of what people are living and and going through. And, you know, funny side story, when I was pitching this book to, you know, publishers all over and, um, you know, one of them came back, oh, we really we love this topic, but if you could just like rewrite it mm. in, as a, like a self-help book and just each chapter is like what people need to do. And I was like, cause that's what really sells. And we really want to sell this book. And, and like, you know, and, and it was a big publisher and I'm sure it could have sold a lot of copies that way. And I just said, no, that's, you know, that's not what my story is. It's not telling people what to do to, to be better. It's showing people what it's like to have been sick and inviting them to be on that journey and knowing that that's not abnormal to live that way. And, and, and that's really, I think, you know, what I've tried to do, what this book is, it's that it's attraction and not promotion, right? It's, Mm. um, it's calling people to a, a better life of recovery by just showing them it's possible, not saying, you know, do better in recovery. <laughs> hmm. So, so I, I love that point. How is it possible? You know, it, it's possible with, uh, with help and, and really by taking a day at a time as cliche as it sounds, you know, for me, it, I was so deep in denial and in in the darkest spots of addiction that I didn't even know how far I had fallen. And so I, I had to reach out um, and, and start learning from other people who had been in there, who'd walked the walk, people in AA and recovery um, to, to show me. Because for the first six months or a year or so, I had no clue. Um, And so it was a lot of swallowing my pride and trusting that I didn't know what I didn't know and, and, and trusting in other people. And then eventually over time, it was reprioritizing my life in a way that, um, put recovery at the forefront and then my family and, and my friends and, you know, in my job and other things, uh, way below that so that I could, live as a a healthy, happy man, husband, father, brother, um, in a way that I wanted to. So recovery always has to come first. I, I believe so. I mean, the rest of my life, I mean, quite literally wouldn't have been possible without it. And so, you know, every, every day that's my priority is, um, how to, you know, do what I need to do to stay, um, sober first and 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 good mental space that i you know focus on what my needs are and communicate those to other people and um so that i you know can do the rest but but yeah it always comes first for me you know i think that there's a lot of functional alcoholics out there right a mm-hmm. lot a lot of people that aren't probably admitting to themselves let alone their family members or closest friends that they have an addiction issue with alcohol. And we live in this culture that we use alcohol to numb feelings, um, you know, feelings of, of anxiety, feelings of 
I mean, boredness even, just being bored, numbing, just get, we just want to get to six o'clock or five o'clock so that, that we can numb those feelings that we've been having all day. And I just, I, I don't know what the question even is, but it, I know it's a big problem. And these are, these are people that are high functioning people in the world that are probably a lot of people just going to live like that for the rest of their lives. And I know I use alcohol to numb sometimes and, and that's a hard reality to face. Like, Oh, that's true. You know? Yeah. And, and no, it's a, it's a great point. And in, you know, and those of you who are interested in, in reading the book, the longer arc of my story with sort of coping with uh, anxiety and feeling different and being bullied as a kid and just always, I mean, I stuffed down a lot of emotions and coped with alcohol long before I even knew that that was a, a thing. And, and then, you know, um, to me, even looking back now, I don't even know what the term functional alcoholic means mm-hmm. because because I, you know, sure, I was one. I mean, I worked all day. Most people didn't know that I had a problem at all. I never missed a day of work. And so I was that for a long time, too. Um, but I, I, I worry about this modern pandemic and the modern struggles that we're in and i see reports and studies of all the you know increased alcohol sales and obviously people working from home and the challenges and stresses and the unemployment rate that's 15 percent and climbing and and i i worry about that for those individuals who have always relied on alcohol and um and who aren't able to to get treatment and resources and connect to AA in the ways that we could you know 3 months ago that that we're going to be even more in a crisis of of mental health and addiction as the weeks and months go on and um and so i i worry about that every day for you know what what this is going to do for for those people who have really been on teetering on the the edge for a long time yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot because, man, we're at like eight weeks now. You know, it's it's been a while. And so people that need that interaction, I mean, how much, how many uh, Zoom calls are really going to be a stand-in, a good enough stand-in for human interaction? Yeah, it's, it's challenging. It, it really is. And, you know, I, I know several personal uh, friends that are in recovery that have just really been struggling recently. And, um, and it's tough, uh, you know, uh, to be able to, when you rely on going to meetings, being in groups and, and really sharing as a community to now be doing a lot of that online or for some people, not at all. And especially for our, you know, smaller towns and communities uh, out there that, don't have some of the same access to to resources that are just, you know, really going to be hit hard by this. Well, I want to give some encouragement to people who might be feeling um, those feelings of aloneness and also encouragement to people who are in a relationship or have a family member who they think they're getting a nudge right now to reach out to. Yeah. And so I would just love to get your thoughts on what what you think we should be um, 
saying to those people on both ends to, to bring some encouragement and light to their lives? You know, I, I think the best thing to do is to, to be a continuous presence and to, to check in and in any way that you can and try to, you know, do routine things and whether it's, um, you know, nightly calls or one week, you know, day a weekend, but just to continue to show up. I, the hardest thing for me when I was, you know, feeling that way was I, I was an isolationist. I wanted to be left alone. I, I, you know, um, didn't want other people to see what I was going through. And it was those few people, a couple of my close friends, my parents, my sister, who just, no matter what, um, uh, continued to show up and, and check in and, and, and met me where I was at, which was denial and sometimes anger and resentment, um, but just kept showing up to the point of, you know, when that door cracked and when the window was open and that opportunity presented itself, we're there, you know, to really get me, um, what I needed, um, when I also knew that I needed help. And so that's my biggest encouragement is that, you know, for so many people and families, I, I, I can only imagine being on the other side of it, of how exhausting and demoralizing at times it is to see somebody struggling and feeling like you can't control it. Um, but you can control what you do. And, and that's find support yourself, find family yourself, find people that understand and, and to show up in the best ways that you can and know that there's no perfect way to do that. And that's where I find a lot of inspiration and hope and know that you're making an immense amount of difference to somebody who's struggling by just trying. And, and that's enough. And um, what about the freedom you have in your life now? Do you feel a sense of freedom compared to where you were six, nine years ago? Absolutely. You know, I, um, and it's been these several chapters, right? I mean, the first few years I, I felt freedom from the daily draw to, to alcohol, to, you know, just the negative thoughts in my head and self-deprecation and self-doubt. And just once I found recovery and was healthy physically and getting mentally healthy, there's a liberation to that. But the greater liberation was, really just letting my story go and be out there and 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 letting it try to help other people and to know that I don't have anything to hide or be ashamed of. And to me, that's just been a whole different um, level of joy in my life that uh, I can be proud of, of this. And, and you know, um, I, I really wrote this story so that hopefully one day my, my children will know that uh, – I'm proud of them too for, you know, whatever they go through in life. And, and that's really the, um, the crux of it. Yeah. I think we find a lot of freedom, anybody in their own, in our lives, when we let go of the fear of whatever people may think, you know, you're scared to go do this or you're scared to do that, or you're scared to peel off that last layer. But when you just let go of that fear, people are going to have thoughts, people are going to have opinions you have so much more freedom when you just let it go. That's right. I I actually sent out a um, a tweet earlier this week that said I'd I'd been making daily let it go lists for mm. the last and 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 so 
you know, and some of those things were big things and other were really trivial, but just, you know, letting go what this person thinks of me or letting go of this deadline or letting go of like, you know, the expectation that I'm going to get through all these emails in the last two weeks. I mean, whatever it is, but just making lists of things that I was just, okay, you know what, I'm going to make peace with, with this and, um, and just let it go for today. And it, that in itself has been pretty liberating. What's one thing you're letting go of? You know, so the truth is um, I'm letting go of what this book does. You know, mm. you, you get into the world of publishing and having agents and all these things. And it's a whole different world for somebody who's tried to just humbly accept his life and recovery of, oh, your book should sell this much mm. or getting all these interviews or like we want you to do this or this and 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 really just focusing on what the point of it was in the first place to you know doesn't matter if I don't sell one more book or if I never am on a podcast again but if this book finds the people that need it when they need to hear it most then it was worth it and and so I you know I let go of that um and you know every day of you know, that wasn't the point of writing this was to you know be on x y or z or whatever else billboard <laughs> but it was to to try to make a difference in whatever simple way that i could and and so the rest i i, I let go of i love that so much that is awesome okay let's wrap up with our end of the podcast questions and we'll we'll make them quick because i'm sure you have important things to take care of right now. <laughs> we have some baby holding to do the rest of the day so my wife can take a break. Oh, is she home with all three kids by herself? Or like in the, yeah. okay. <laughs> has she gone back to work before she had the baby? So she, she has 12 weeks off. Okay. Um, so baby's five weeks old actually. And okay. uh, so she'll be home another six or seven weeks. And, and yeah, we've been navigating that with a lot of people out there of having all so the hard. kids and, um, yeah. So one day at a time. <laughs> oh, I, I imagine she is, she's like, get off this interview right now. I've been, I've been in her shoes, not in a pandemic, but we have four little ones and it's, wow. um, being home, waiting for, <laughs> waiting for the significant other to come, come home and relieve you is, is uh, is hard. So, um, we'll make it speedy for her. You're fine. Uh, by the way, what does she do in the healthcare, uh, world? She is a clinical research coordinator. So she coordinates clinical trials for, a, or, a orthopedic trauma group. So she's kind of, uh, does a lot of their follow-ups and checking in with patients who have had limb injuries mainly, um, from like serious car accidents and other things. And so she's done that work for really since before we met and, uh, really loves it. Oh, great. Yeah. Um, yeah, the childcare situation right now is just another whole, it's a whole other podcast in itself. It is. (laughs) (laughs) Um, okay. Dr. Hill, what is, or who is someone or something that you would like to illuminate on this podcast? So somebody who I find a lot of strength in um, and really have built a friendship with over the last few years is Ahmad Hanker. He's uh, on Twitter called The Wounded Healer. He's um, 
become a, a dear friend of mine who's a, a psychiatrist in in London, England, and who really speaks openly about his mental health story and also having one of, you know, being admitted to an inpatient uh, psychiatric hospital and now many years later also being a, an immigrant to London and, you know, going from being a janitor to with a mental health story to now a esteemed psychiatrist doctor in, in England and winning all these awards. And he's just an incredible human being and um, somebody that I really look up to, um, but also have developed a really close friendship with over these last few years. And it's kind of, um, yeah, somebody I'd love to, to highlight. People can check him out on, on Twitter and YouTube. And um, he posts a lot of inspirational things. The Wounded Healer? Yep. What's your Twitter name? So it's Adam Hill 1212 um, is the actual, you know, at, because uh, I had my Twitter long before I had some professional presence. And then, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but Adam, Adam B. Hill, MD is the header, but it's at Adam Hill 1212. I found you. You have 19,000 followers. Jeez. Yeah. I just gave you a follow. Okay, cool. I wish I would have found you on Twitter before the interview. Could have dug up a lot of good questions there. Um, <laughs> what is bringing you joy right now? So the the simple answer, and obviously it may be the obvious one, but it's my my family, my kids. Uh, you know, the this pandemic has been difficult and. Um, but it's really given me an opportunity to just reframe and be present in the moments of their lives and, you know, how, how they're growing up so fast. We have a four-year-old, a three-year-old, and a five-week-old. And so just to, to spend intimate moments with them, and um, it's just incredible when I look back of what my life was 10 years ago to what it is now mm. and brings me a lot of daily joy. Yeah. I hope people listening who might feel in the – in the throes of it can, can hear that, you know, can hear that there is another side. It's, you know, and it's really, really, really hard. And I pull my hair out and I scream mm -hmm. into those and I cry and I get frustrated. And, and then, you know, I had a moment like the other night where it was beautiful outside and I just laid in the lawn in our backyard as the kids were throwing leaves into the wind and they were just chasing them. And I was just like, this is a photograph mm -hmm. moment. I'm going to keep and and just keep it in my mind of how beautiful this time together was and you know and then I probably you know cried myself to sleep the next night but <laughs> but there's those moments that just make it all worth it yeah I'm having a one of those really happy days today and I'm coming off a week where I was just really just kind of like I always say I'm being a monster like I'm just not the most pleasant human being and I'm like I was just dancing in the kitchen with my kids all morning and um, usually on mornings when my husband has meetings back to back to back I usually get pretty grumpy because I'm like oh you know with these four kids and no break but I was just like on cloud nine and I don't even know why. And then I'm thinking, why can't I always just feel like this? Well, we just, we just can't, like, it's just not always going to be like that. And that's where the grace comes in, right? Like just, it's okay to feel like that and you just keep moving forward. Yeah. Okay. 
two more quick questions. What is the best, most recent book you've read? So uh, it's a book called Love Lives Here um, by Amanda Jet Knox. She um, the Canadian. It was a um, Canadian bestseller, I believe, last year. And it really talks about um, being raised and living um, in a transgender family and, and just talks about a different perspective of love and equality and just open-mindedness and she's just such a beautiful um national advocate for for uh trans rights and um just really an eye-opening book that i that i really loved well that sounds really good and i love the title so much love lives here that's so good um what dr hill is your one message to send to the world you know um I think the the one message is that there's so much hope for for recovery, and um, I've I've been in those moments where I didn't believe what I just said, and and it really just starts with as simple as reaching out your hand to, to somebody, uh, to anybody, and and trusting, and and taking the next step because um, the future can just be in, incredible and. For me, and live that proof every day, and and so it just starts with uh, those simple steps. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in today. Thank you, Dr. Hill, for coming on the show. We appreciate you sharing your message and your story of hope. I just want to encourage everybody right now: if you are struggling, if you are having any sort of mental battle, reach out to somebody. Somebody cares. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline number is 1-800-273-8255. Help is available. Speak with someone today. Reach out to your friends. Reach out to your family. Reach out to somebody. Okay, everything we talked about today on this podcast is in the show notes at theilluminatepodcast.com. You can find us on social media on Instagram. We are The Illuminate Podcast. On Twitter, we are illuminate underscore pod and on facebook we're the illuminate podcast we really appreciate each of you being here today if you enjoyed this conversation if you think someone needs to hear this conversation please share it with whoever may need to hear it and if you are enjoying this podcast please consider leaving us a rating and review on itunes or whatever app you are listening on that is one way we can get this podcast in the ears of more listeners to share these stories of hope and to bring light to the world. All right, friends, I hope you're having a really great day and we will see you next Wednesday on the Illuminate Podcast.